Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. My co-host is Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Today's IC Pod bonus edition is a conversation that I had last summer with my friend and friend of Inclusive Collective, Aparna Ray, on her show, Data is Love which is broadcast live every Monday on LinkedIn Live. Aparna and I had had several conversations this past year about some of the DEI reporting that we had seen and about how we were disappointed in the lack of transparency we were seeing a couple of years after the murder of George Floyd and after the major commitments that organizations were making publicly in terms of DEI and racial equity. And we felt there was a big gap in terms of those public-facing commitments and what we were seeing in terms of communication on their progress. So here's that conversation of Parna and I talking about the lies that companies tell in their DEI reporting. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Super excited to do this Data is Love with my friend, Rob Hadley, who is calling in from, you're back in Salt Lake, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Salt Lake City, Utah, um, hottest place in North America probably right now. Um, and we're going to talk about something that I... I love talking about, and Rob, like you and I talk about this frequently, which is like, what, like, what are the little white lies companies tell, the ways in which they manipulate data, the ways in which they hide information, specifically when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all of the bits and pieces that drive workplace equity forward. So as we're getting started, will you tell people about yourself? and your kind of like amazing career journey that's brought you to this moment. Yeah, well, first of all, Aparna, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. I love this show, and I am super excited to be with you uh, and your audience today. I uh, am happy you mentioned that it's 104 degrees here today because my air conditioner is not working, so if there's beads of sweat running down my forehead as we talk today, then that's not a, a representation of how difficult the question is. It's just because it's really, really hot in my office right now. Um, yeah, and so, I, you know, in terms of my background and career, I have uh, spent about 20 years in various roles that they always had some sort of data presentation component, right? So build a business case, uh, tell a story with data, show us why we invest this, you know, why it's appropriate to invest this money and, and make us look good in doing so. So. Uh, and, and so I did that in finance and operations and strategy. And then a few years ago, I ended up in people analytics with a, you know, and, and a big chunk of that focus was on diversity, equity, inclusion there. And so, you know, I think that, I think that you and I talked about the fact that I probably wasn't in tune with what I was going to see and learn and find out as I, as I had access to this incredible amount of, of people data. And as we started to dig into where there were biases in the organization. And so, and, and the, you know, I'm particularly passionate about this topic because I was in those, I think you often refer to it as gatekeeping conversations, right? So we were always as part of organizations trying to figure out how do we, how do we tell a story? How do we, you know, what can we say to the general public about some of our efforts and what we've done well, what we tell show our employees. And I was usually in those conversations, often as the voice of greater transparency, greater liberalization and progress in presenting DEI data uh, to, you know, our workforce and to the general public. So 
um, yeah, so tons of experience in corporate America, working with this data, uh, and, and I can, you know, as I, as I learn more about it, and as I went out uh, on my own and wanted to start my own company, I just felt that all the things that I learned about, one, how companies, even though they may know what they need to do in terms of taking steps in order to, to close the gaps they have in terms of risk uh, inclusion, they may not be able to do it based on the culture that they, that they have uh, for whatever reason. Um, and then we also learned a few tricks that in organizations that are maybe slow to make, how you can get people to make a, a little bit faster and to, and to move some things forward um, when, the, when the challenges seem pretty great. So I just felt like that's something that I wanted to share with the world and, and build a company around. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what I do currently. Oh, I love it. Okay. So we're going to end the conversation with it. How we can get people to move faster? Um, how how do we speed things up, right? Because I I think that what's you know true for me um, as an immigrant um, and you know a woman of color and like you got uh, a kiddo as well that right like whose mm -hmm. mom is also an immigrant and so right. you know we don't we don't want I think it's safe to say that like we don't want to continue to go to work in an environment that doesn't value us or that's just, you know, less kind um, in many ways. But, and it shows up in policies and practices and, you know, like who are the people that feel good about taking time off and who is absolutely terrified to take time off, like I am, um, feeling guilty about it constantly. So, okay, let's dive in. Um, you said that you would share at least five. <laughs> Five. Five guys, yeah. Could well, be three. Let's, let's start with okay. Let's start with let's start with the first one. What is yeah? What's the what's the number one thing that sort of annoys you when it comes to people data? And I do want to right. So we we talked about lies, misrepresentation, uh, white lies, right? And so I think that what I've come to as I so I, we talked about doing this presentation and I started to dive into some of the companies that I was familiar with and where they, they presented data. And yeah, I know that. I know that you know, people are working hard out there, especially in big companies, trying to present the data in, in a fair as possible way. And so what I think I've come to is that it's more of a case oftentimes of how an organization or company does everything is how they're going to do anything, right? So whatever the, mm -hmm. the underlying culture that they have is going to, going to seep its way into how they present progress with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I've gone from calling them lies to, I call them now, you know, shit that just really annoys me about the way the company present their data. Uh, and I, and I'm, and you might say, Rob, well, you know, you're easily annoyed. That's, that's possible. Right. Uh, but I think it annoys employees. I think it annoys candidates. I think some of these things annoy, obviously a thought leader like yourself and consultants in the DEI space, uh, as well as DEI leaders and ERG leaders and investors that want to invest in companies and feel like they're, you know, they're investing in a company that takes diversity and inclusion seriously. So it annoys everyone, not just me. Um, so the first thing. Uh, on my list is really just, and a lot of these things really stem from the same problem. It's the over-aggregation or summarization of data, particularly with regard to representation, right? And so usually, so bad DEI report usually starts with too much aggregation in terms of representation data. Uh, and so that is, we are, we're going to show everything BIPOC versus versus white, or we're going to show I diverse people. <laughs> And again, no, no person can be diverse. We're going to, we're going to call diverse people versus a white population, right? And so, um, and what that does and why that annoys me so much is because each of our 
underrepresented or underestimated or minoritized groups face different challenges in the workplace. And putting them all together is obviously, uh, and, and often you do that because you don't want to reveal what's happening at a lower level, uh, at, you know, because there may be some very acute problems facing a certain group within it. So if you start to see some over-aggregation, it's because you start to think, well, what, what are you trying to hide there in terms of what you're showing us? So, um, you know, the minimum standard of representation for me looks something like, you know, those big categories. Like I used, I worked in corporate America for a long time. You could used to only be black African-American, Hispanic, Latino, you could be Asian, uh, or you can be other, or you can be white, right? Like, you know, those are the big things. And so I feel like we need to see those things. You need to go at least one level lower, right? For racial representation, right? And so I know that, uh, you know, the product that you have, the product for DEI does a really good job of diving one or two levels deeper in these things, right? So I don't want to necessarily see that you're Asian. I want to see part of Asia or we from, right? Because uh, different, different, different challenges. Uh, then we also need to see in terms of those, you know, those representation metrics, we need to see gender with at least a non-binary option, preferably yeah. more, at least that, right? Again, I'm talking about the minimum standards here for representation, things mm -hmm. like not necessarily things that will help you solve problems in your organization. Those you need to get a little bit better and a little bit deeper. But I need to see age as well, uh, you know, some, by some appropriate cohort or generational cohort as well. Those are things that you have, everyone has. Everyone has and can start there. This is to say nothing of the things that would be even more helpful, uh, such as uh, sexual orientation, disability, university, socioeconomic class. Those are things that you need to have a really good self-ID campaign where you're working with your employees to understand their background and who they are. And, and that requires a greater level of trust. And that's what you want to have. But Let's just say nothing of those things. Um, and then I also want to see management levels, right? So representation at different management levels, the appropriate things that are uh, for a particular organization. Um, and then also by function, because again, different functions will, uh, how they, you know, how they show up in different parts of the organization, uh, or how different uh, demographics will have different challenges, different functions in the organization. Um, yeah. Right? So... And then we need to see a trending over time, of course. We need to see uh, at least three years of data of how things are progressing in your organization. Um, if you want to, so, you know, we'll settle for three years. Uh, if you want to pretend like none of these things existed, the last, you know, until three years ago, if some organizations do, then that's fine. We'll, we'll pretend along with you, but at least give us three years. We can see how things are advancing. Um, and, you know, and so why do we need this? And I think it's, like I kind of mentioned it, we need it to see it at this level because if we start to have a good piece of representation data, if we start to see what's happening in different functions, if we know what's happening for management levels and you can see it over time, a story starts to emerge and I can really understand what's happening in the organization and if you're making real progress in some of these key, uh, in some of these key areas. And if I can see that in that data, then I have a pretty good sense that the organization understands it as well and they may be able to do something about it. And so like, you know, um, so it's really important that the representation available is not aggregated and over-aggregated. Yes. Yes, a thousand times, right? And, and I'm sure you hear this a lot from employers. They'll say, well, you know, I don't want to get sued. I don't, you know, I have to minimize my risk. And I, and I think, you know, what I've started to see in the last couple of years is it, Companies will not collect self-ID data other than the very broad EEO buckets um, because they don't yep. even want to disaggregate by anything other than what they, they have. 
um, right? And they're not on any campaign to clean up even the data they have to report out for EEO, their EEO1 reports. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, the disaggregation piece is, it's like, it's, it's a tricky one, right? Because I think that a lot of companies see that as um, potential risk. Um, and at the same time, I think, you know, folks that are out implementing, they can't, they can't actually, um, create programs or initiatives that are specific enough without, without that data. And then we find ourselves all going to these two hour unconscious bias or imposter <laughs> syndrome or like whatever, like psychological safety, you know, like, I feel like there's like a new buzzword every month that's like very hot. Um, and then we go to these two hours trainings and, and they have very little impact if at all, because it's so generic, right? right. It's not differentiated based on Yeah. Based on what people are experiencing. And I want to, you know, on the topic of disaggregation, so you talked quite a bit about representation, right? And having mm -hmm. the demographic data at all of those levels. There's also, I think, um, like employee sentiment down yeah. that, yeah. right? And I'm curious, like, what, like, what your position is on having access to, like, I think both, like, the hard data, like, around representation, promotion velocity, but also the sentiment, like how am I experiencing my organization data? So, yeah, so a few things there that you touched on. Um, and so, you know, I think that one, one of the things that companies tend to overestimate or underestimate is the risk of not solving these problems as well, right? So obviously mm -hmm. they're very in tune with the risk of collecting the data and then being sure because they have a problem. Um, well, they often solve for, or they're, they're often sued which we're not solving the problem, right? And so, I, yeah. you know, any any effective leader will look at the, will weigh those risks as well, right? And they will look at it and say, make sure that I'd rather solve the problem than than take the chance that uh, it goes unsolved and I have to pay up uh, either way. Um, with re this is also another uh, annoying thing for me, is that, and it's actually the it's the presentation of sentiment data which you touched on and you're asking about as a sign uh, of, of progress or of how impressed our employees are with the efforts that we made so far and over aggregating the presentation there as well, right? And so oftentimes they'll say, okay, look, we got, yeah, we're, uh, we have this inclusion score and yeah. it's it's 86%, which is really good for our industry. And the question I always have, okay, well, first of all, are you, are you, uh, differentiating between who feels that way, <laughs> first of all, like what are the inclusion scores at those representation markers that we just spoke about, right? So, yeah, um, you, you're you're white, you know, you go out and you ask your your white employees, are we an inclusive workplace? And they say, wow, we we're really inclusive. Things are things are great. And then uh, different groups might say something differently, right? And you have to understand that. And you have to present that in order for me to really understand and respect. Uh, the efforts that you're making, and then, yeah. then the, the yeah the the thing that really annoys me is is oftentimes like you said that you'll have real data to support the sentiment that you're asking people right and so so uh, right, I want to back up one second so inclusion score will have you know so there are so many different models of an inclusion score right so 
Gartner has a uh, an inclusion model that's eight different components, right? So psychological safety and fairness and the way that you get along with your manager, et cetera, et cetera. And, and there are many others and they're all appropriate and, they're, and, and a lot of them are, are very good and they're driven by real data, real data science. And yeah. nobody will make the determination of what's the right inclusion score for them. Totally mm-hmm. great. But you got to tell us which, what goes into that inclusion score because, because you can also find that on one of those dimensions, you're doing really well. And on another dimension, you're not doing so hot, right? And so mm-hmm. where you're actually falling down, and again, again, by showing that you understand that there is another level of detail here, <clears throat> we feel like you might have a handle on the problem and be able to solve it. Yeah. But then the second thing is, again, surveys and sentiment are a proxy for real operational data oftentimes. Yeah. So again, don't tell me that your employees think that you're fair, uh, mm-hmm. but in the environment. Show me the actual presentation data, the mm-hmm. data the uh, pay equity data, right? Like show me, show me those things that are actual operational data that can prove uh, and, and align with the sentiment data that you're, that you're sharing with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, overstating the inclusion score, not telling people how you got to a number, right? I mean, we, we know this, right? We all went through high school math where you have to show the work. You have to show the work. <laughs> You have to show how you got there, show, right? Sure. Like, yes. Show your work. Put that, yeah. that in the graphic down there below. Show your work. Yeah. That's the Show your work. <laughs> um, okay. I want to talk a little bit about pay equity uh, and pay transparency. You know, like in Washington State, I actually don't know what the status is in Utah, but in Washington State, a couple of years ago, you know, we we passed some pretty progressive pay equity legislation. Um, and, you know, and our like, there's a there's a huge push right now for salary transparency and what's come along with it are all kind of pledges and like credentialing and uh, yeah so what of what if any of it is like real and useful and uh, like what are all the places where employers do like some like real sneaky stuff with respect to pay equity well, again, this is, I don't know if it's if it's sneaky or if it's just, uh, uh, you know, so to your first point, you might be surprised to learn that here in Utah, we're not as progressive as, uh, as, as we find in Washington State. We're a little bit, little, you know, a little bit behind in that regard. So uh, the state of Utah, so two years ago, did a big pay equity audit and, uh, you know, and they came up with the headlines or, and the news was, you know, Utah has no pay equity gap. And, yeah, and, you know, you go to company reports, organization, nonprofit, other government reports, and, and that's the way that it is presented. There is no pay equity. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. or that we have a 99% pay equity compliance, or, you know, we're, you know, we're 99% pay equity compliance. Whatever. And so I think that, again, it's, that's the kind of thing that you present to the public in hopes that they don't dig any deeper than that, right? And so, yeah. One of the things that annoys me very much about inequity is so what we're talking about there when a company makes that proclamation, what they're talking about is, is uh, in the first uh, branch of pay equity, which is equal pay for equal work. Yeah. And that's Rob Hadley is an accounting manager too at some organization and Aparna, and I have 10 years of experience and, you know, and, and Aparna is an accounting manager level two. 
at the same organization, you have 10 years of experience, the organization should be able to do the math and take a look at our salaries and say, are these, are these close? Are they, are they equal? Right. And yeah. a lot of times that's what you're seeing when people make those proclamations, organizations make those proclamations about pay equity. And so yeah. always say that it's, it's any kind of organization with some job leveling and, and you know, some salary grades uh, should be able to get that piece right. They should be 99.9% compliant in that regard. Because what they're celebrating mm-hmm. celebrating when they make that proclamation is that we are not totally confident and we can do math, right? Yeah. And so as long as that's the lowest level of pay equity they should be able to do. Now, I was wrong about that because a couple of weeks ago you probably saw that Google just paid out $150 million settlement because they couldn't even yeah. do that piece, right? You know, so um so I think that, you know, so I'm, I'm so it, it's important to do, right? And so obviously I don't, I'm not disparaging the equity analysis in that regard. However, yeah. the thing that I'm interested in is going back again to that representation, because as you move up in an organization, and we know that most large organizations are full of white male on top of their organization chart, you get paid more, right? And so yeah. a better presentation of pay equity in, in your organization would be to see their salary or even better yet total compensation at those managerial cup levels uh, all the way to the top and what you'll find most often is that they really mirror representation right so it's it, so that's what salary is going to look like it's going to look like as you move up the organization you get paid more and as, as we go up organizational charts it's going to be more male and white and so you're going to see inequity in the distribution of pay if you're looking at that that way and that to me that is that representation gap of upper levels of organization is the pay equity story. And we really kind of just kind of dust it off, right? When we, we're making that presentation of pay equity is 99% compliant, we say, well, adjusted for other factors, but 99% compliant. And say, well, those other factors are very important, right? Like so the job level, job grade, et cetera. So, so that's one uh, thing that annoys me about pay equity presentation. And then the second thing is, especially in, uh, you do a lot of work in tech. And so a large, you know, especially in the startup world and fast growing tech companies, rapidly growing, you know, it's really ownership equity that is important. Those, and so if you're an engineer and, and I'm hired and I'm given 10,000 shares and you're an engineer and you're hired and you're given 2,500 shares and then yep. the company makes it big, there's a drastic amount of disparity in the way that we're compensated, whether you want to call it pay equity or not. And so companies are starting to get much better about this and Carter does a great job of, of, of showing us as, you know, in terms of cap tables and, and then you, you know, obviously led by a great leader there um, as well. Um, so my, my point is that equity, ownership equity is, is a big piece of pay equity that I think is underreported and underappreciated. And that's how people build generational wealth in our country, right? It's how people get a yeah. get ahead and get a leg up. And it's really important to make sure that that's front and center as well. Yeah, I think, you know, you said earlier, like salary, but ideally total compensation. And, uh, you know, you spent the majority of your career in corporate America. I spent the majority of my career in the social sector where there are no stock options and, you know, necessarily bonus structures. Yeah, no, I mean, you you can barely make your rent. Um, And... And now that I am working more in tech and I'm working with even, you know, larger um, nonprofit organizations that, that quite frankly run like corporate America, one of the things that, um, you know, doesn't get talked about is 
all of the industries in which your bonus could be the equivalent of 100% of your base pay. Mm. Or more. Yeah. Or more. You know, throw throw in the stock or an equity piece and suddenly you're looking at like a bonus that is 200% of your base pay and who's eligible for a bonus. Like a lot of times it's only managers or senior leaders that are eligible for a bonus. And then they're writing goals in a way where they can meet them so that they can get their bonus. And on paper, they'll say exactly what you're saying, right? Like we're 99% in compliance. And I'm like, um, yeah, and 99% of your organization doesn't know that you get an extra million dollars at the end of the year. Right? Right. Yeah. And if you presented that data, right? I mean, you would look incredibly imbalanced, uh, you know, mm-hmm. assuming that this, this individual uh, is, you know, may not be from an underrepresented group or minoritized group. Um, yeah. So it, it, it really changes the way that people perceive pay equity if you're presenting it in that way, as opposed to the way that most people will show it. Yeah. And bonuses can be negotiated as well, right? And so you could, you could absolutely have 100% pay equity in your organization, discounting all of the variable comp. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I... You know, I really hope that like Glassdoor and Payscale and some of these other companies start to have like variable comp as a component that they show. So they're not only just showing you the base, but all of these other things that are the difference between, yeah, building generational wealth and just, you know, making your mortgage payments bit by bit. Um, Okay. One last thing that I want to talk about, um, and we've touched on it, is surveys. Um, if a company is building their inclusion score, often they're building it, often doing all kinds of employee surveys. Um, certainly we do a lot of surveying with our clients and customers, um, good, bad, ugly. Where are you on them? On, on, on surveys in general? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of companies will say, well, we did a survey and, you know, like here's our score and like, we're doing great. Right. Our survey shows us that 99% of our employees are very happy. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No. And, and, and that's what I was touching on is it's, is I need to see it at a deeper level. You know, you had uh, your uh, sometime collaborator, Nicole Kai on here. And she yeah. went some of the things that are wrong with surveys or wrong with data science and organizations in general. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that <laughs> if, if you dig into nine out of ten surveys, I, I don't love I, I don't love them in particular. Uh, you know, um, we even talk about you know you mentioned Glassdoor, and so Glassdoor has their survey of uh, and they have their score for diversity inclusion, and I don't love necessarily the items that are on there, uh, and, mm-hmm. and so I'm not going to nitpick uh, on your show about like a particular yeah. item, but I think that there's there's good surveys, there's bad surveys, and I'd say that you know eight. eight eight or nine out of 10 are probably not that great. And then when they're presented, they're over aggregated, like we were talking about, and then, uh, and, uh, you know, misrepresented in the way that, uh, that will make the company look better. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about like surveys as a proxy? Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, again, you know, again, there's, there's operational data, uh, that will, you know, so if you break down, 
what your you know, what inclusion is, and mm-hmm. hey, like companies are over eager to to show or you know that that um, something that that that's positive in their favor in terms of like positive employee sentiment, uh, and yeah. they're, they're over eager to ask how they're doing on a process that has real data that supports it, right? And so that's, you know, again, that's, and, and this is something that you don't you have to take my word for it. Uh, you know, that you're very, very successful uh, neighbor up there in Seattle, Jeff Bezos applies this, you know, in terms of Amazon, right? Like yeah. he's not that interested in customer surveys about how well people feel about the delivery of their package. He wants to know real data about when did it actually get there? Did it meet expectations? Mm-hmm. Our expectations, uh, and then, um, uh, you know, and then also, uh, d- d- are we getting repeat business as well? Right. So those metrics are more important than how people necessarily tell you they feel because they might not tell you exactly how they feel. They might not necessarily understand uh, how they feel, and so it's really important to have operational data to back it up. Again, you know, if you, instead of asking people how fair we are as a company, show me how fair you are based on the operational people data that you have uh, and present it in a very fair manner. And that, that will show me a lot more than actually asking people how fair we are as a company. Yeah. And do companies tend to have it? Like in your experience, do companies tend to have the operational data? I mean, of course, Amazon has it. Um, yeah. Do they have the operational data? Yeah. They, they, it's... It's there, it exists, they usually run their organization based on it. They're getting, um, it, again, it, they may have gaps, but mm-hmm. if your goal is to show the operational data that will show you how you're actually doing on, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, then mm-hmm. and you have a gap in terms of what you have in, ter- in terms of that operational data, then you know that you can work toward it and that can be something that you work on as well, right? So, but just that mindset of we're going to show, we're going to be actually be very focused on the operational data that will show us if we're actually making progress, will help you achieve, uh, you know, a more inclusive workplace for your organization. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of Inclusive Collective. Thanks to Aparna Ray for having me on her show. If you want to find Aparna, check her out at climateforDEI.com. Check her out on LinkedIn, where you can follow Aparna and subscribe to her newsletter. She also is a regular contributor at Forbes, so be sure to check her out and her writing there as well. And thanks, of course, to my co-host, Nadia Butt. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. We'd love to hear from you. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And please tell your friends, forward the podcast to them. They're going to love it. We'll be back next week with more Inclusive Collective. Take care, everyone. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.